Well, good morning. Go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Genesis 37, please. We're looking at verses 12 through 24, and in this section, uh, we come to the beginning of what are uh, amount to many trials for Joseph, and what a great encouragement it is to us uh, that God is always working through trials, through all of the circumstances. He is working out His sovereign will, even through the ordinary, sometimes difficult aspects of life, and we certainly see that in Joseph's life. And so if you would stand and follow along, I'm going to read Genesis 37, beginning with verse 12. Now his brothers went to pasture their father's flock near Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, Are not your brothers pasturing the flock at Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. And he said to him, Here I am. So he said to him, Go now, see if it is well with your brothers and with the flock, and bring me word. So he sent him from the valley of Hebron, and he came to Shechem. And a man found him wandering in the fields, and the man asked him, What are you seeking? I am seeking my brothers, he said. Tell me, please, where they are pasturing the flock. And the man said, They have gone away, for I heard them say, Let us go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan. They saw him from afar, and before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. They said to one another, Here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him, and we will see what will become of his dreams. But when Reuben heard it, he rescued him out of their hands, saying, Let us not take his life. And Reuben said to them, Shed no blood. Throw him into this pit here in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him, that he might rescue him out of their hand to restore him to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore, and they took him and threw him into a pit. The pit was empty. There was no water in it. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for your word Your word is truth, and by it, and by it alone, we have life. We find life. We know life. And so we pray the words of your Son, Jesus, sanctify us by the truth. Your word is truth. In Christ's name, amen. Go ahead and have a seat. The text this morning begins by telling us that Joseph's brothers are away. They're shepherding their father's flock. Hebron was 20 miles south of Jerusalem. And Shechem was 30 miles north of Jerusalem. So Joseph's brothers were 50 miles north, which would have been about a five days journey. You consider that. Joseph would have to walk this long journey to find his brothers. And it seems a little bit surprising. Maybe difficult to understand in light of, especially in light of how we know, if you know the rest of the story, how Jacob protects Benjamin later on. Won't even let him leave the house. Very protective of this child. 
So it seems difficult to understand him sending his favorite son, who is going, flaunting this magnificent coat of many colors that's been made for him on this long journey to find his brothers. And so it makes us wonder if maybe the brothers had withheld or hidden their animosity in some ways. Maybe they had moderated their contempt for Joseph whenever their father was around. That's a common thing for brothers to do. Dad is not watching. Things may be a little different between brothers than when dad is watching. And certainly that may be the case here with the brothers. But the sense that we get is that neither Jacob nor Joseph had any idea of their hateful intentions toward Joseph. And so Jacob sends him, go and find your brothers. In verses 15 through 17, it tells us a man found him wandering. He makes this long journey and gets to the valley of Hebron. He came from Hebron, came to Shechem. A man finds him there wandering around. So he's made this long five-day journey, and he can't find his brothers. Joseph arrives there, his brothers and the flocks are all gone. You consider that a young man like Joseph, dressed the way he's dressed, wandering around alone in a Canaanite killing field, not a good idea. But God is taking him, He's moving him to a specific place. And God is working providentially to get him there, providing for Joseph along the way. And so he provides this man who sees him and asks him, what are you you searching for? What are you looking for? Joseph says, I'm looking for my brothers. I'm seeking my brothers. And he tells him, they're they're, they're gone. They're not here anymore. I heard them say they're going to Dothan. So God's working providentially here to get him to Dothan to find his brothers. Dothan was another 14 miles away. To Joseph's 64, 65 miles from home. That is a far distance from Jacob's protection of him. And it seems that in that place, in Dothan, so far away from home, from the protection of his earthly father, the, the bottom falls out. Underneath Joseph, things begin to fall apart in his life. This young man who's had these great dreams, trials begin to come. But God is there and he's working and ready to catch Joseph in the midst of this trouble that's coming. And as we consider that, in the midst of this, it's interesting to consider the place that God has providentially taken Joseph. Dothan. There are two specific instances of God's care in Dothan. The first is here with Joseph, where Joseph will eventually cry out for deliverance to the Lord to what seems like no avail. As we get further in the story, he's cast into the pit. He's crying out. And it seems as if he's not delivered. That's the first instance. But the second instance in Dothan was when the prophet Elisha in 2 Kings chapter 6 was there. And he found himself surrounded by horses and chariots of the armies of Syria. 
Remember the story? And his servant is there with him, and his servant is terrified and cries out in fear. The second Kings chapter six, verse 17 says this: Elisha prayed and said, "O Lord, please." Open his eyes that he may see. So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, the servant. And he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. Now, what's the significance of that? You consider Elisha and the servant and the blessing that, that God gives of opening this servant's eyes to show him, you, you're not alone. It's not you against this great enemy. It's not you against this circumstance. I am with you. The Lord is here and He is working. And it's important for us to understand that the angels were just as present for Joseph. God is working just as mightily for Joseph in Dothan as He was later for Elisha. You can imagine, we can imagine Joseph, Joseph couldn't see the angels though. He couldn't see the chariots. He couldn't see what Elisha could see later on. And so he must have feared, but God is there working and moving and planning and doing all along. And so it continues in verse 18. They saw him, the brothers saw him from afar. And before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. They said to one another, here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him. And we will see what what becomes of his dreams. You can imagine Joseph approaching, seeing his brothers. And at the same time, they see him. They know he's coming. They know that coat And look at where their jealousy, look at where their bitterness has led them. As they see Joseph coming from a distance, they saw him from afar, it says. They begin to conspire against their brother. Here is our opportunity. Here's our chance. This brother that we hate, this brother that we are jealous of, this dreamer, here's our chance. Author Thomas Mann imagines it this way, and with one accord, their hearts beat with a wild, rapid rhythm like drums, so that a hollow, concerted drumming noise arose in the breathless stillness. They conspire against their brother. It's their bitterness, it's their jealousy welling up in a rage against their brother, certainly each playing a part, maybe even adding to the plan, throwing out ideas, but all willing to cooperate. Their wickedness has risen to craft this evil plan to kill and cast his murdered body into a cistern unburied. It goes on in verses 21 and 22, but... When Reuben heard it, he rescued him out of their hands, saying, Let us not take his life. And Reuben said to them, Shed no blood, throw him into this pit here in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him, that he might rescue him 
out of their hand to restore him to his father. Reuben hears what these brothers are conspiring and he, he puts a stop to it. This murderous plan will not be if Reuben has anything to do with it. Reuben is the firstborn and he gets word of the plans and, and he's going to put a stop to it. Now Reuben himself had fallen out of favor with his father Jacob. No longer the one to be blessed. So he can't afford to have further blame from his father. As the eldest brother, he would likely bear the responsibility and therefore the majority of the blame if something happens to Joseph, Jacob's favored son. Reuben doesn't want that. He covets his father's favor. He wants his firstborn status and blessing back. And so he steps up to rescue Joseph, to protect him in some way. And we don't know actually Reuben's motives, but it seems the consensus among commentators that he's, he's just simply trying to get back into his father's good graces, to get favor back from his father. That maybe this act would win back his father's favor. And that seems to be confirmed as we look ahead to verses 29 and 30 where Reuben returns to find Joseph gone, unable now to rescue him, tears his clothes and says to his brothers, the boy is gone and I, where shall I go? And so he commands his brothers not to shed blood, throw him into the pit. And that's a, that's a plan that he has internally. I will go back to the pit and I will lift Joseph out and send him on his way and get him back to our father. Verses 23 and 24. So, when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore, and they took him and threw him into a pit. The pit was empty. There was no water in it. The brothers hated Joseph. As the brothers' hatred increased, God in His providence sends Joseph into their midst while they are far away from home in the wilderness. God sends Joseph there. Imagine what is going through Joseph's mind when he encounters his brothers. His brothers. The verses here describe a brutal scene. They strip him of his coat. It's not kindness or gentleness that's happening here. They're not removing gently this coat. They're roughing him up. Strip him of his coat and then they dump his body as if dead into a pit, into a cistern. It says the pit or the cistern was empty. There's no water in it. It was a place where water once had been. It's where they held or kept water. Now it's empty. And so it would have been a a deep pit, something that Joseph could not climb out of, something that he could not escape on his own. Also, the fact that it says there's no water there gives us the impression or the picture of death. This is a hopeless situation for Joseph. There's nothing life-giving in the pit. 
So we're left to hope in Reuben's hand alone to rescue Joseph. But what we find is that Reuben is unable to rescue Joseph. And yet, that doesn't mean there's no one who can rescue. God is working in this place of death. He has planned. He is working out His plan in this place of death. And so here we find Joseph bruised and bleeding on the rocky floor of an empty water cistern. And their intent is to let him starve to death there. And that's where we end our narrative this morning. What seems to be hopeless, what seems to be empty, what seems to be a picture of death. And as we leave the narrative in what seems to be desperate and hopeless, the question, again, that we want to ask as we work through this, what does this have to do with Jesus? What does this have to do with the gospel? That's where we're going. That's what we want to be asking each week as we go through this story of Joseph and Jacob. As we look at the story, we want to know how is it connected to the gospel. We want to be people who have lenses, who look for the gospel in the Old Testament stories. And there are wonderful connections here in these verses. Pictures that we see throughout See, there is a far more tragic story about a pit, or more specifically, a grave. You consider how this text begins. Just in these verses, 12 through 24, it opens with a father sending his beloved son to his brothers who will conspire against him to kill him. And what does the son say to the father? Here I am. Send me. I'll go. That's the gospel. That's the story of the gospel. A father sending his beloved son to the brothers who will conspire to kill him. God the Father sent His Son, Jesus, to His Israelite brothers who hate Him, conspire against Him. And the Son, Jesus, says to the Father, Here I am, send me. I will go to them. Verse 18 in our text says, They saw Him, the brothers saw Him from afar, and before He came near to them, they conspired against Him to kill Him. It's a wonderful picture, foretelling of what will take place with Jesus, a picture of the Pharisees as they look at Jesus. They conspired against Him because they didn't see Him as they should. They saw Him from afar. They didn't have eyes to see who He truly was. And what do the brothers say to Each other as Joseph is coming. We'll see what becomes of his dreams. We'll see what becomes of his plans. We'll see what happens when he's dead. Pharisees were so much like these jealous, hateful 
brothers when Christ was on the cross mockingly crying out, come down from the cross if you are indeed the Son of God. We'll see what happens with your plans now. As they're beating Jesus before he's hung on the cross, who, who struck you? Mocking him. Another wonderful picture we have relating to the Gospels, verses 15 and 16. It says, a man found him wandering in the fields, and the man asked him, what are you seeking? I am seeking my brothers, he said. Tell me, please, where they are pasturing the flock. Doesn't this sound so much like Jesus? Now, don't get, don't get this wrong, okay? As we try to make these connections, we said in the first week, Joseph is a sinful person, but God is purposefully writing the Scriptures and purposefully giving us pictures ahead of time, giving those in the Old Testament pictures of what he's going to do to redeem his people. So we're not saying Joseph is Jesus. We're saying God is giving us pictures ahead of time of the beauty of the gospel and how he redeems people. A man finds Joseph wondering, what are you seeking? I'm seeking my brothers, he said. Tell me, please, where they're pasturing the flock. The wonderful picture of Christ who came from heaven to earth, this distant country, seeking his brothers. Luke 19.10, for the Son of Man came to seek and to save that which is lost. And so this innocent son, Joseph, goes to find his brothers in verse 23 The brothers who have conspired against him to kill him strip Joseph of his robe. Likewise, the Pharisees, the religious leaders, the Roman soldiers strip Jesus of his clothing, beating him and handing him over to be killed. Joseph had committed no crime worthy of death. He was unjustly treated by his brothers. And likewise, Jesus was completely innocent and yet treated as a criminal, treated as the worst of sinners. Lastly, we see a more contrasting picture. In the story of Joseph, the brothers are jealous, they're hateful. And their plan to kill him, they're seeking to shift the responsibility. What do they say in verse 20? Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. But let's look innocent. We'll say that a fierce animal has devoured him. We'll see what becomes of his dreams. So let's kill him, but let's take his robe and let's dip it in the blood of an animal. And we'll take it back to our father and say, is this his robe? We found it. Something must have happened to Joseph. And so they're, they're, they're shifting responsibility. They're shifting blame. But what a, what a terrifying picture we have in the gospel with the Pharisees and the religious leaders. Consider that against the evil intent of the religious leaders, when they rise up against Jesus, Matthew 27, 24, and 25, so when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took water and washed his hands before the crowd saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. And all the people answered, his blood be on us and on our children. 
We'll take full responsibility. Kill him. They're so intent on killing Jesus, the Son of God, they willingly took the responsibility on themselves. These brothers of Joseph, they don't want to have any part of it. They want him gone, but they're shifting responsibility. These Pharisees, wicked and bitter in heart against the Son of God, willingly say, His blood be on us. We take full responsibility. And yet... Just as in the case of Joseph, it is God's providence. It is God working. We saw last week in Acts chapter 4 that the disciples together, they're praying and, and they pray. In the midst, you had assembled together in the city Pontius Pilate and Herod and religious leaders, the Roman soldiers, to do all that your hand and plan had predestined to take place. It was, it was your plan, Lord. Through these wicked acts, you were carrying out your plan of redemption. God is working to bring about the rescue of His children. That's what's happening here in Genesis 37. God is purposefully getting Joseph to a place to rescue those who hate him. And that is the gospel. God purposefully sending His Son to rescue those who hated Him. Isaiah writes this way in Isaiah 53, beginning with verse 4, Surely He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed Him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with His wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to His own way. And the Lord has laid on Him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, and He was afflicted, yet He opened not His mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so He opened not His mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. It was God's will. It was God's plan. It's His providence working out through His Son to bring about redemption. The Lord Jesus, by the will of God, laid His life down for His brothers. He was despised and rejected, but we know... We know from the writer of Hebrews that for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. All of God's plan, all working out through Christ. God's gracious providence. The Lord Jesus died for our sins willingly, the righteous 
for the unrighteous, but was raised victorious, conquering the grave. And I would urge you, if you don't know Him, that today you would surrender and believe and trust in Him fully. He alone can save. Reuben and men like Reuben cannot save. Joseph, in all of his innocence, was a sinful person who needed to be saved. We, on our best days, are desperate for God's grace, which is displayed through Jesus. We're going to go into a time as brothers and sisters in Christ, where we take the Lord's Supper. And just as Isaiah foretells, Jesus was crushed. His body was broken and His blood shed on the cross. And that is what we remember each and every time we take the bread and take the cup. And as we do that, we are participating with Him. You consider this with with Joseph's brothers and how they pushed Him away. Cast Him aside. And that's true with Christ. He came to earth and He was cast aside. He was killed. And yet He made a way for us to participate and fellowship with Him. To bring us into the good graces and favor of our Father. And what Paul tells us is as we take the bread and the cup, it is a means of participation, of fellowshipping with Christ. That's what he writes in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 16. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? That that word participation is a fellowship, a communion together. That we together are fellowshipping with the Lord as we remember what He did to bring us into that relationship. And so let's, in our hearts, rejoice and worship Him, and as Paul says later, proclaim His death together until He comes. Let me pray. Father, thank You for Your goodness and Your grace. We thank You for stories like Joseph and so many others throughout the Old Testament, Lord, that, that are there to point us to You, not to individual sinners like ourselves, but to you, the one who's working out redemption, the one who's making a way of redemption through your son, Jesus Christ. And so we praise you for Jesus who has come. We praise you that his body was broken and that his blood was shed so that we could be set free. That those who trust in you You say of them, there's no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. That Jesus, you took the fullness of God's wrath, all of the punishment for all of the sins for all of those who would believe. And so we praise you and we thank you. We ask you to help us. In Christ's name, amen.